Dr. Amanda Concha-Holmes is talking to a room full of students and educators in Gainesville's Eastside High School's library. So the problem with stereotypes is not that they're untrue, but that they're incomplete. They make one story become the only story. Students in this room have spent the last three months receiving training and instruction as part of their collaboration in the production of this podcast which was inspired by a series of community workshops called Decolonizing Representations, led by Dr. Concha Holmes. So when we talk about African-American studies, when we talk about learning about the complexity of Black lives in Florida, we don't want one story. We want a multiplicity of stories because there's a multiplicity of people in this room. All of us have very different heritages. All of us have very different stories that brought us here to Florida. Students in teams of three and four researched a person with an uncovered legacy in Florida and the Gainesville community, ranging from the last known survivor of a racially motivated massacre to being the first black student to cross segregated school lines in Alachua County. They then used audio from interviews by UF's Samuel Proctor Oral History Program to create vignettes showcasing who each person was and the influence they've had on their communities. So how can we evoke, not just tell, not just give it the cognitive word, let me tell you this fact and feature, but like, how do we feel it? That's why we're singing. That's why Turbato is starting with civilization. This is why we will have drummers and dancing because our, it's an embodied experience. This is a production by WUFT News. I'm your host, Gabriella Paul. In this episode, we will be hearing five of those stories. They range in topic and experience, but are all interconnected by similar characteristics. Their struggles, their perseverance, their strength. These are the tales of unsung heroes in Florida. One of Florida's historically black communities was established in the 1800s. The town's name is Rosewood, and it's located in rural Levy County. It's most prominently known for the 1923 massacre that killed at least eight people. According to the Gainesville Sun, the tragedy is one of the most barbaric injustices black people in the state have faced within the last 100 years. Yet, its legacy is rarely discussed and was forgotten for nearly 60 years. Eastside High School student Dominic Humes shares insight into the tragedy by telling us about Mary Hall Daniels, one of the massacre's last known survivors. Hi, my name is Dominic Humes, and I am a sophomore at Eastside High School, and my two producers were Anaya and Amar. Who was Mary Hall Daniels? She was the last known survivor of Rosewood Massacre of January 1923. But nobody never talked about Rosewood. Nobody knew nothing about Rosewood because they didn't talk about it. She was about three years old at the time and learned details about the event through her mother. I don't know anything about Rosewood. I was just born there. The Rosewood Massacre was an attack on a predominantly African-American town of Rosewood, Florida. The cause of the massacre was a white woman who claimed a black man had beaten her. Daniels explained that her mother told her Fannie Taylor, the alleged assault victim, her husband James Taylor and 500 cool Klux members went on the hunt for them. Everybody was being killed and all the houses and everything was burned to the ground. Her mother was Mary Davis Hall, 
who carried her through the forest to safety along with her older sister. Then we were still out there in the woods, and my mother said we could look over the swamp and the, and the blaze and the fire. It was so red that we could just see the fire and the fire and, and the blaze that they was burning down the house. Every house, black person house in Rosewood, America, was burnt down to the ground. Daniel's daughter sometimes spoke of uh, for her mother behalf, saying that her mother values truth. She felt this way partially because the massacre started as a lie, and this shows that the truth shall always set you free. To this day, only one home in Rosewood remains, and people are still fighting to keep its legacy alive. While the last house in Rosewood serves as a lasting legacy of a tragic part of Black history in Florida, there are other legacies that speak more to a joyous part. Student Kamal Smith tells us about Bo Diddley, one of Florida's most influential Black musicians. Hi everyone, my name is Kamal Smith and here today I'm with Maddox and Elijah. I'm a freshman at Eastside High School and today I'll be telling you about Bo Diddley. Bo Diddley Bo Dilley is a huge influence when it comes to the 1950s rock and roll. However, Bo Dilley does not get enough recognition. Bo Dilley's nickname was the originator. He was a singer, guitarist, songwriter, and music producer. Bo Dilley started playing the guitar after hearing John Lee Hooker, and from then on he began playing on the streets and corners, performing regularly at the South Chicago Club. Bo Dilley's style of guitar was different from anything most people have heard. When I met Bo, his style of guitar was so different than anything I imagined. It just kind of blew my mind. That's Scott Free, a close friend of Bo Dilley. Free also mentions Bo invented many special effects. Bo was such an originator, like the nickname that stuck to him. He did something that was so different. You had to be able to read between the lines to see it for its true worth. Bo Diddley is like a guitar player from Mars, because in 1955, no guitar sound came close to him sounding like it's going backwards sometimes. Diddley had other innovations in tone and attack, and one came to be known as the Bo Diddley beat. His biggest hits are I'm a Man, Bo Diddley, and I Love Will Never Go. But even through the success, Free says Bo experienced extreme racism. I'm a Man is a statement song. It's a veiled statement song. But Bo, he experienced extreme racism. I'm a Man was a declaration that a lot of black men were never heard saying that in certain places. Because if they said it, they could be arrested, killed, beat up, attacked. Dilly's influence is still be felt today. Free said he inspired countless musicians and songwriters. Bo was a huge influence on the musicians and the songwriters because Bo was doing something that they wanted to do. They wanted to have some hits and they wanted to have some crossover. They wanted to get some crossover hits. Diddley's legacies can still be experienced through the Gainesville Bo Diddley Plaza. For WUFT News Broadcasting Hope Production, I'm Kamal Smith. While fighting against racism, Bo Diddley made a name for himself in the music industry. By 1987, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. While Diddley was paving the way for black musicians, others were opening the door for all black students to attend the college of their choice. Students Jude and Rex discussed the legacy of George Allen, 
the first African-American to graduate from the University of Florida's law school in 1962. Good afternoon, I'm your host Jude. And I'm Rex. And today, we're going to be discussing about George Allen. And his challenges and achievements. Who was George Allen? George Allen was the first African-American to graduate from the University of Florida Law School. He was the only African-American in the class, and he was also the first U.S. lieutenant of color. He served in the military for two years. And there were about 10 blacks, including myself, in the brigade. And by attending UF in the year 1962, the UF Law School graduate made a noble decision. He was accepted into other law schools, but he decided to study law in the South to open doors for other students and to be closer to the civil rights movement's heart. I was admitted to Harvard and the University of California, Berkeley. Had I chosen either one of those schools, I could have gotten a free ride. But I went to the University of Florida and my wife and I had to pay because it had to be done. Someone had to do it. It had previously only been available to white students. so. Being the first person of color to do so in the state of Florida opened the doors for all black students to attend the university and or college of their choice. And by this, he made a huge difference at UF becoming a person of influence through financial contributions and making a name for himself. I'm a native Floridian, so I wanted to come home and do my bit to make sure that any child of color could obtain an education equal to what white students were obtaining. Virgil Hawkins paved the way for George Allen. Hawkins and five others were denied at UF solely on color. Due to this, he fought for equal rights, and eventually there was a law school for blacks, which Allen attended. With all this information, we can say that Virgil was relentless at his work. Virgil was indefatigable. He uh, was hell-bent on changing the system, not only for himself, but for all blacks, and he knew he may not see the promised land, but he did that so people like me could do it. Based on the acts of Virgil Hawkins, this motivated George Allen to become an inspiration to the African-American community. When George Allen graduated in 1962, African-American students started to enroll in the University of Florida's undergraduate program. Another Eastside High School group tells us about Stephen Mickle who was one of the first black students to attend UF. Angel, Carissa, and Dominique. Who was Stephen Mickle? Well, if you're from Gainesville, you may have heard about a local essay contest. The contest asked students to write about Mickle's life and wake of his passing. He is an important figure in the local black African-American history of Gainesville and Florida as a whole. I was one of the first seven black students to enroll in the undergraduate program here at the University of Florida in 1962. For starters, let's introduce him. He is often referred to as Judge Mickle, as he was a United States District Judge. As of this year, he would have been 78 years old. Judge Stephen P. Mickle's legacy is unprecedented and unparalleled to any other. His life became a prototype of service, commitment, and love for his fellow men. Judge Mickle graduated from Lincoln High School in Gainesville and began his undergraduate college studies at Bethune-Cookman College in Daytona, Florida in 1962. Judge Mickle transferred to the University of Florida in Gainesville. He did not realize that this would begin a monumental trajectory for the rest of his life. Seven students, including Judge Mickle, were the first African-American students to integrate UF in 1965. It was a turbulent time for Southern schools and Southern universities. And so when I decided to enroll, I'm thinking, is this going to be another Mississippi or Alabama type situation? So there was anxiety there. 
but I was determined that I was going to go through with it. Against all odds, Judge Mickle was the first African-American to earn his undergraduate degree in political science at the University of Florida in 1966. Judge Mickle continued the charge and earned his master's degree in education from UF as well. The only thing I want to do is get as far away from this institution as I can get because I had no real pleasant memories. Stop and think about it, students in that day, and not even today, in historically black colleges, for example, when they graduate, they have classmates. Oh, yeah, oh, John was from this city, or he was in my fraternity, or whatever, you know. We hung out together. I have none of that. My college slate is just white clean because there was nobody but me. At first, Judge Mickle didn't want to become an attorney or a judge. He initially wanted to be a junior college professor so that he could share his knowledge with others. After teaching high school students for one year, Judge Mickle enrolled in the UF's College of Law. By the time I got to law school, it was a very friendly environment. I joined study groups with other white law students because I was the only black in the school. And when it was all over, I was elected vice president of the senior class at the law school. Judge Mickle became the only the second African American to receive his law degree in 1970. That's a total of three degrees he, where he is awarded at the University of Florida, which is known as the Triple Gator. Three years undergrad, one grad, and three of law school. I've never been in a class with another black student in it. It's a different world. His legacy goes beyond UF's campus. President Bill Clinton nominated Judge Mickle in 1998 as the first African-American U.S. District Court judge for the Northern District of Florida. He became the chief judge of the Northern District of Florida in 2009. Judge Mickle's religious affiliations include being a faithful member of Mount Carmel Baptist Church, where he served as a chairman of the Board of Trustees, regularly taught Sunday school, and served in other ministries. In addition, Judge Mickle is a lifetime member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity and the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Around the same time UF integrated, three black students crossed segregated school lines in Alachua County. Student Jaden McBride is part of our last group showcasing the stories of untold heroes in Florida. He talks about Joseph Joel Buchanan, the first black male student to attend Gainesville High School in 1964. My name is Jaden McBride. I'm a sophomore at Eastside High School and my two producers are Carlasia and Kaishi. Joseph Marcus Joel Buchanan is known for the first black male student to attend Gainesville High School. He was also known for crossing segregated school lines in Alachua County with the help of two fellow black female students, Sandra Williams Cumming and LaVon Wright Bracey. Born on July 13, 1948 during segregation, Buchanan graduated from the University of Florida where he earned both a bachelor's and a master's degree specializing in speech and English. During his childhood, Buchanan grew up with his parents, three brothers and a sister in a small home. My family was very religious. My life as a child was home, school, and church. We played within the neighborhood, within our yard. We were not allowed to go across the street or down the street to play. It was controlled. His father, Joseph Buchanan, was a head chef while his mother was a housekeeper for a local judge. Buchanan reflected on his first encounter with a non-colored person with the two judges' kids. Johnny and Francis. He remembered them having more entertainment than his family, such as more toys, more organized activities in their neighborhood. In the neighborhood, we played ball a lot, and a lot of things were made. There were 
some toys, but very few toys. Bicycling was more important or prevalent in the black community more than so the white community, so it was a different type. This was more of an organized type activities where this was just a played activity. Certain things he couldn't play with kids were games such as cops and robbers. These were games he had to play in his own neighborhood or with his own siblings. He didn't go to school with people such as Johnny and Francis. To him, it was just the norm. I think I recall asking why, and it was just one of those things I was told is that that's the way things are, and as you grow older, you will understand. The turning point of his partake or thoughts about integration and segregation started when he did a science fair project he made all the way to districts, even with not being integrated, but when going to state, he was turned away at the door by being told he could not enter. Not only did his teacher not defend him, but he was never given an answer to why he couldn't enter with this incident. Buchanan joined the NAACP. Listening to what was going on, going to different meetings, I became aware that it was two separate societies out there and something was not equal. After hearing for so many years that white lives were so perfect, he decided he wanted to start going to a, a white institution. He wasn't welcome at all and even was given a warning about how life could change. Buchanan knew he could be killed, hurt, and may start failing. He even was seen on television sometimes where black students tried to enter the white school and the governor was there denying him access. While riding in the police cars, he didn't put anything past him and knew all this stuff happening to others could happen to him as well. Buchanan is best known for his work in preserving black history in Alachua County. In 2019, the UF alum was honored when the university unveiled the Joel Buchanan Archive of African American Oral History. This contains over 700 interviews and its sound was used throughout this episode. The legacy of these unsung heroes can be found throughout Florida in its history, culture, music, and monuments. One just needs to slow down and pay attention to their surroundings, listening closely to hear their voices, feel their influence, and see how they altered the course of history. This podcast is made possible by a Florida Humanities Broadcasting Hope grant. It was inspired by a series of community workshops called Decolonizing Representations, led by Dr. Amanda Concha Holmes, who also serves as a director of this grant. Thanks to Ms. Jamisha Lyons and her African-American Studies elective class, as well as her ninth grade world history class. Thanks also to Alachua County Schools K-12 curriculum specialist, John Ream, Eastside High School principal, Leroy Williams, and director of UF's African-American Studies Department, Dr. David Canton. The Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida provided tape of archival interviews with Mary Hall Daniels, Scott Free, George Allen, Stephen Mickle, and Joel Buchanan. Members of the UF Sankofa African American Studies Society, Asha Clark and Kiara Thompson, helped coordinate a campus visit and tour of WUFT News for Eastside High School students in the production of this podcast. Members of the UF Sankofa African American Studies Society helped coordinate a campus visit and tour of the WUFT studios for Eastside High School students in the production of this podcast. Elliot Trudeau, Fariha Abrar, Reagan Knight, Malia Leiden, Violet Comberweilen, Trey Ecker, Jordan Kalman, Maya Irwin, and Sky LeBron assisted in student training and workshops. 
At the final workshop, Turbado Marabu performed a traditional African libation and Barakisa Kulabali led students in West African dance choreography accompanied by drummer Kofi Horn. This episode was written by Malia Leiden and Ryan Vasquez. The executive producer is also Ryan Vasquez. And I'm your host, Gabriella Paul. For more information, please visit wuft.org slash broadcastinghope. 